You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, welcome, devoted listeners. Wow, happy fall. Fall is my favorite season. I don't know what the weather will be like on the day that you are listening to this, but boy, today... It's beautiful in the Pacific Northwest. I'm from Wyoming, which I love Wyoming, but can I tell you, Wyoming does not necessarily kill the seasons very well. There's not exactly like a whole ton of fall color. And boy, when I moved to Oregon, after I adjusted to the fact that this wet cold in the winter, like it took me about four years, I think, to get warm. And I still am a crazy layering girl, but the fall here is truly amazing. The color, you get some warm days still. It's not like it's cold and rainy just yet. And it is truly a glorious season. And I think most people in the Pacific Northwest are probably appreciating it even more than normal this year because we did have that crazy smoke and we will probably never take air for granted again. I know that that was just a really crazy time out here to nearly be smothered by the just the air. So to have these beautiful crisp fall days, oh, I just love it. Almost wish my podcast area could be outside on a deck, but that doesn't work out so well. So, but want to tell you a couple things that are going on here at Athey Women which is a devoted podcast, is a ministry of Athey Women. But we just launched our Psalm 119, Way of the Word Bible Study. So it's been going a couple weeks when you guys are listening to this. But if you didn't get a chance to be a part of that, but you still would like to check out the study, do it. You know, go on to the Athey Creek website and you can still get the book. You can do it on your own. You can do it with a small group of yours. All the teachings that are going to go with it will have those available for you guys to stream from the athecreek.com website or the YouTube page, either one, the Athey Women YouTube page. But you can link and find all of that information on the athecreek.com women's ministry page. That's kind of your one-stop shopping for all the things that are going on with that. The podcasts are there, but then anytime that there's the Bible study stuff, and we'll keep all of that current there. But I'm really excited about that. It's been so amazing to see all the women that are excited also to get into the Word. And it's just so thrilling to see that. So I I love it. So if you didn't get a chance to be a part of that and you would like to in some way or at least get the study and do it on your own, go over there and grab that. The small groups are already going, you know, for the study itself, but you could still do it on your own and kind of put your own group together. And I would just really encourage you to do that. It's really, really great to get a group together. Sometimes I think there's a little extra layer of accountability with that. But then also just during this post lockdown, some of us still a little bit locked down stage, but sort of emerging into being able to fellowship with one another again and have a little bit of that connection is so good. You know, we are doing a lot of the virtual small group stuff now. And who knew? Who knew that we could do small groups virtually? We had no idea. But I, so many people have really been blessed by that. So don't let the fact that you can't go somewhere stop you. You can always put together a small group of your own, even through Zoom. So anyway, I think that's really fun to do. So I wish that we could just sit down face to face and just have this chat. Today, we're going to tackle a topic a little bit that when I first say the word, you're going to be like, oh, goodness, thank goodness I can check this one off my list. I do not struggle with this, and this is not a big deal. 
So with that amazing preface, what I want to talk about is idolatry. And I, like I said, as soon as I said that, you were probably like, oh, cool. That's something I can check off. Probably when I said the word, willing to bet a couple images, probably quite literally, came to mind. You know, my, my brain goes back to some Old Testament type pictures of actually little or perhaps sometimes big, but physical idols. We read about that in the Old Testament, and we see that in the New Testament. You think of the Greek and the Roman gods and goddesses that people used quite literally that were created out of wood and gold or marble, whatever they made them out of. And as ridiculous as it sounds to us in 2020, they would worship that thing. They would bring offerings to it. They would sacrifice to it in sometimes extremely horrific ways. But these idols they were their central part of their culture, their faith. I mean, it, they believed in these things. Even when we strip it down and you're like, wow, that's a, something that's made physically out of your hands. I'm going to read a, a passage in a little bit in Isaiah that's going to talk about that. It seems silly to us. Why would we do that? It seems so crazy. I got to see a little bit of this type of idolatry a couple of years ago. I was super blessed to go on a Journeys of Paul trip with our church that took us through a bunch of the cities that Paul was in during his missionary journeys. And But we got to go to Corinth and Philippi, among several others. But one of them, the showstopper for me, was Ephesus. We got to go to Ephesus. And Ephesus it was the home of the goddess Artemis to the Greeks. She was called Diana to the Romans. A pretty nasty, grotesque idol. I mean, she's this big multi-breasted god that signified, you know, that they worship for fertility and success and all that, you know, but a really kind of nasty looking thing that you're going, wow, how did you worship that? And yet, as you walked through this ancient city, which to my historical craving archaeology you know i just loved the city i still maintain that i just might be an archaeologist when i grow up i just loved it it was so well preserved you walk down these ancient streets and they have been able to rebuild so much of the city to be what it was when paul was there but there's also so much of this just grossness because there was so much dedicated to the worship of this idol and that's when we look at idolatry. Those are the images that we probably conjure up in our mind. That's what it kind of looks like to us in the Old Testament. Idolatry, the definition is worship of images made to represent Yahweh, so the true God, or a God, you know, a false God. But it's image worship, you know, something to that we're going to pay honor and tribute to, but it's a created object. And the reason I say that sometimes it's images to represent Yahweh, the real God, is because we do see that even in some Christian faiths. You see that in Catholicism some, where there will be images of Jesus that are honored as a, you know, an image of God, but that image itself is worshipped, and that in and, itself, in and of itself is idolatry right there. In Isaiah 45, and I'm going to read a larger passage in Isaiah 44, because I want us to have kind of a picture of what this old school idolatry looked like, because as I then want to take us to what the what it is in our day, then I want us to not forget what the connotation was in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 45, it says, Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods who cannot save. 
when we hear that verse and then we think of the idols that I was describing er- earlier and you know th- and thinking of what I saw in Ephesus and other places in in Greece and those types of references to old school that old image that we have of idolatry it does seem ignorant it would seem ignorant to pray to those things they cannot save you right seems so silly a little longer definition just to give us some good context on what the old testament was referring to when it talked about idolatry in isaiah 44 i'm gonna read pieces of 9 through 18 or so but it's such a good picture of stripping it down of what really idolatry is, okay? So it says, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can represent nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. Not showing us an awesome picture of those who elevate idolatry, those who practice idolatry. This is not a good word for them. And it would go on to talk about the idols themselves and what they were made of, how they were made. In verse 15, it says, it is used as fuel for the burning some of it, we're talking about the idol here, takes, he takes it and he warms himself and he kindles a fire and he bakes bread. But then, as we're talking about the wood here, he will also fashion a god and worship it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. I think I just bring this up again because it seems so silly to us. How could you craft something with your own hands and then bow down to it? And as Isaiah is pointing out here, the same piece of wood, the same tree that you're taking and using part of it for wood, part of it to warm your fire to, so you can bake bread with it. And then with the other part of it, you're going to make something out of it. You're going to craft something. You're going to craft an idol and then worship it. And then later in verse 17, he would say, and then the, the, the idolater, the person who is practicing this, would pray to it and say, save me. You are my God. Even though in verse 18, it says they know nothing and they understand nothing. It's a pretty bleak picture. And it's one that is difficult to find argument for, that that would be a, a worthwhile pursuit. And yet, in the Old Testament, we see this all the time, that the Jewish people continue to fall into idolatry. And before we just check them off and think to ourselves, again, I'm not worshiping Artemis over here. Or maybe we just think this is just a great Old Testament, good history lesson. But before we check that box, I want to keep following this down the road here. So let's look at what idolatry looked like in the New Testament, because Paul's going to give us a little bit more context that might just hit a little bit closer to home. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then he says, which is idolatry? Oh, well, this is a little tougher because now we're not necessarily talking about something that is fashioned with our hands, that is some little object that we're going to make and worship and say, save us, because that sounded ridiculous. But what else is idolatry? Well, Paul is going to tells us here that it, it's impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, all of these things include this is part of idolatry. So it isn't just that object. I went back and did a little study on some of these words. And one of them, impurity there, that is just referring to cleanness. 
But it's more than just our physical bodies. That's beyond what it's talking about here, because the mind is an integral part, an integral aspect of our personality and what we have as part of our attitudes and motives Those are also, they're going to form our behavior, our thoughts, the expressions on our mind, all of those things. Those are all within that definition of impurity, that cleanness piece. So if you think about that, you think about, oh man, our motives, our attitudes, the things that can govern our behavior, that is also idolatry, according to Colossians 3 and 3, 5. Another one in Ephesians 5, 5. It says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. And this one, again, it's easy as you read these things to go, man, I, yeah, that's just not me. I'm, I, you know, not worshiping false gods. The impurity one, well, that got a little closer to home because could I have attitudes and things that form my behavior that are not what they should be? Yeah, I probably can. So, okay, maybe I'm, I can be in that idolatry camp. And then Ephesians 5 brings this even to greater light to me when it brings up who is covetous. And so this is just where we're going to start drilling down on this a little bit more. The definition of covet is a strong desire after the possession of worldly things. Covet, a strong desire for the possession of worldly things. So I, we can go a couple tangents with this. I think the most obvious one, we're told in, in the Ten Commandments even, to not covet. Pinterest anyone, right? I mean, why we as women love to go to Pinterest. And I'm not saying that Pinterest is all bad to pop on there and check out decorating ideas for your house or whatever. I I actually always appreciate that because I find myself probably one of the least creative people possible. And it's really fun to go on and check out somebody else's giftings in that area. And I can do that. If they just say how to do it, I can probably make it look okay. You know, those um, recipe thing, there's a site you can go to and you can put all the ingredients that you have in your kitchen and it'll tell you, hey, this is what you can make for dinner. I sometimes feel like people like me need that for decorating. Like, here's what we have. How do I make this look good? Because I think that would strike that good balance because the problem we can go down with Pinterest and the things that we see, these amazingly perfect homes, is we can start to have a strong desire after the possession of worldly things, right? To make our house, to make our living room, to make our bedroom look exactly like that picture and have that desire to do that. That is something that we need to be careful on because then that can kind of bring us down a road of discontentment and it's a covetous attitude. It's coveting. And as we're pointing out in these couple different scriptures here, that is a level of idolatry here. Like Paul is identifying coveting in that way, in the context of idolatry. But there's another aspect to coveting as you dig down on that word a little bit, and it implies a self-idolizing. And the other part of the definition was a grasping spirit. I really started contemplating on that piece of this definition for covet, implying a self-idolizing and a grasping spirit. The grasping spirit, I see that within the the Pinterest thing and the and the idea of, oh, I just I want that thing. I want this to look like that. But the self-idolizing part of covet, that's interesting to me. And so I want to just drill down as we focus in a little bit more on coveting 
as a piece of idolatry. All along, I kind of want you guys to keep in your mind, in the back of your mind, that description that we read in Isaiah of the ridiculousness of the idol. Because I don't want us to forget about what we're talking about. We're talking about idolatry. But it's funny how it, there's a little bit a deeper layer that is pretty personal. And some of this is going to probably feel a little bit sharp to us. But we need to realize that the, this is what we're talking about. And idolatry is a really big deal in scripture. So if we can look at this piece of idolatry, the coveting piece, the self-idolizing of that, and how does self manifest itself in this way, in, in idolatry? How can we be our own idol? And it does sound kind of base, right? Is it, that sounds so wrong to think that we would perpetuate ourselves as an idol. Again, if we're going to go back to that Isaiah picture of idol and they're carving and, and crafting something out of wood, it seems completely preposterous to us that we would like take a piece of wood and then try to make it look like ourselves and that's the thing that we would worship. But Equally ridiculous, equally empty, and equally true is when we make ourself an idol. And this idea of self can devolve quickly into some statements that are going to sound pretty familiar to you, you know, kind of the devolves into the things that I should have. You can hear that covetousness piece right there. You can hear that grasping spirit. I should have this. And another way of looking at that, and maybe a word you might hear in that is entitlement. How do we turn ourselves into a thing to be worshipped? Maybe through entitlement a little bit. Think about phrases like, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to have it all. These are things that are not uncommon to us. You're entitled to your dreams. Man, dream big, whatever you want, it's within your grasp. When you really think about a lot of those statements, I don't know that I had really observed the coveting that's really in that, but it's really true. Especially like when you think of the aspiring to the dreams and all the things that there's nothing you can't do and and all of those things. I mean, ask yourself how feminism has become an idol right now. The elevating of one gender, often at the expense of the other. We got to watch out for that. That is something that we often do as women, and perhaps I'm meaning like not us always personally, hopefully, but we definitely see that culturally. Elevating women, elevating women just for the sake of being a woman, as opposed to being an image bearer of God, which men and women are. Whatever color you are, whatever gender you are, image bearers of God that is the equalizing standard that we all have. But instead of focusing on that, it's often, well, this class of people is better than this one, or it's just a big mess, right? And we've seen all kinds of that stuff perpetuated in our culture right now. There's a lot of that entitlement, and I think it can be really damaging. But these phrases, the I deserve to be happy, I deserve to have this, all of those things that you definitely can hear that coveting spirit in there, there is a love of self in here. And this is really what I think is so pervasive right now is the love yourself culture. Victoria Austin is the wife of Joel Austin, who is a very well-known and famous prosperity gospel pastor. And she said, The bottom line is that you can't love others if you don't love yourself first. Hmm. Sounds kind of good. Kind of. But let's think about this. 
How is this promoting ourself? It's saying here, she says, the bottom line is you can't love others until you love yourself. You've got to love yourself. Have we heard that one a lot, that you've got to love yourself? Jen Hatmaker, who purports to be in the Christian community, she said, we love people the way we love ourselves. And if we're not good enough, then no one is. Did you hear it? The love yourself. To our culturally relevant ears, this resonates, right? This is like, yes, absolutely. It makes sense that I need to, I need to love me. I need to accept me just as I am. Whenever I say phrases like this and they start to sound really good, if you hear the pronoun me and I more often than you're hearing most of the other words, it should probably be a red flag. And this is most definitely a red flag. So as we hear these things and and this very common phrase, because we hear this with whether it's celebrities or whether it's, like I said, people that are purporting to be in the Christian community saying, you've got to love yourself. You got to love yourself. But can I stop you before you go too far down that honey-dipped rabbit trail? Because what does the Bible say? The Bible does tell us that we are to love who? We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. And sometimes these folks, they even use that verse as evidence of why it is so important to love ourselves. But what's implied here, and I think is really misunderstood, sadly, by Jen Hatmaker and Victoria Austin and other proponents of the self-love culture, is that they think loving ourselves is an aim, but it's not. That's not what this is saying. Self-love is innate. Jesus is drawing the comparison on something that he knows as our creator that we already know how to do. He's not saying you need to love yourself so that you know, so that you can love others. He's saying you already know how to do that part. James kind of drills down on that when he's talking about people, if you being hearers of the word only and not doers of the word, looking into the word of God as a mirror and then walking away, totally forgetting what your reflection, what you even looked like. The analogy he's making there is that nobody does that. You don't go to a mirror and then walk away and you have no idea what you look like. You, you just don't do that. Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's saying, love your neighbor as yourself, meaning you already know how to do that. You already know how to love yourself. So that's how you are to love your neighbor. He wasn't saying that for you to pour into self, like our self-culture is trying to tell us that we need to do. So you might say, well, what about those who truly struggle with the, with a really unhealthy view of themselves? You know, self-hatred, self-loathing even. And, and that is out there. And there are some folks that for sure, they've got an unhealthy view of who they are as an image bearer of God. But even in saying all of that, where is the focus of all of those feelings, all of those phrases, all of those things that those folks are even struggling about? And this is not to be insensitive to that, but what is the center of the universe, if you will, when you are coming at things from that perspective? It's the self. You know, how do I feel about who I am? How, how am I, can I be a better person for this? Or even when you're focusing on your negatives, I am so inadequate. I don't have enough of this. I don't have the abilities to do this. All of those things, where is the focus? It's all on ourselves. The idea of low self-esteem, it has a disproportionate focus on me. It has a disproportionate focus on the self, on the things that I can do, on the things that I should be doing or need to be doing. It's all I, 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 I. That is a wrong perspective. That's a wrong perspective. 
So let's look at what scripture will have as the response to how we should be, what a right perspective of this is. And unfortunately, these things don't have quite the tagline that the love yourself phrases. It doesn't sound quite as good to our ears. But Philippians 2, 3, and 4 tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So at the end of that verse, he says, yes, look to your own interests, but not just to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. To me, it is a, just such a clear contradiction between the self-love culture that tries to tell you that you've got to love yourself before you can love others and Philippians 2. I, I do nothing from selfish ambitions. It's telling you to not look at what is going to help you. But in humility, humility, that's a lowering of yourself so that you can look to the needs of others, that you can elevate someone else, not yourself. And again, I think Philippians 2, it's again implying that piece of this is a struggle for us because we already do know how to do the love ourself thing. It's pointing out that you got that piece. This is not a struggle for you to love yourself. You already know how to do that. So the reminder here, the admonition for us from Paul here is he's saying, don't do stuff out of selfish ambition, putting that piece in check, the piece that knows how to love ourselves all too well, the conceit. Got to get rid of that. And we need to focus on, in humility, on others, putting their interests ahead of ourselves. No other place in scripture are you going to see this as a more beautiful, perfect picture than in Jesus himself. His model over and over is one of humility, of putting others ahead of himself. It is not a lot of self-care when it comes to Jesus. And I know even by saying that word, I've probably offended some people because I'm not telling you to not care for yourself. But what I'm asking you to have as a layer onto that is putting others ahead of yourself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. If you can look at all the things that you have highlighted in your self-care section of whatever that looks like, and if you can do Philippians 2, 3, and 4, and they don't come at odds with each other, then you're probably just fine. But doing nothing from selfish ambition. And we got to make that check because it's just so easy for us to tell ourselves that, you know, well, I ha- I've had it so rough, so I deserve this. Man, we don't deserve anything. We do not deserve anything. And I know that's not super popular here, but it's just, it's just what the word says. So a couple scriptures here on this too, on our proper perspective on this, you know, Jesus reminded us in Luke, Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Obviously, this sounds so crazy contradictory to our culture because he's telling us to deny ourselves. I would be so hard-pressed to probably go five seconds on social media and find something that was promoting a spirit of self-denial. That's just not a thing that is something we want to perpetuate. And it is crazy to me when you see that even some Christians are not supporting that, and they are pushing more of this self-love piece. It is a contradiction to the model that Jesus had for us. I also love Galatians 5.24 
when he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this, in the next passage I'm going to read also, they just highlight to us what we do with these things, you know, these desires of coveting that thing, whether it's like an actual physical thing that we saw and we want and we want our house to look that way or we want our kids to act this perfect way or whatever the thing that we are coveting, that grasping spirit, maybe it's that or maybe it's this more this self-love piece of making sure I'm loving myself and all of these things. What do we do with those kinds of desires? And I love how in Galatians, it says that if we belong to Christ Jesus, that our flesh is crucified, even with those passions and desires. So that's sort of like a spoiler alert here on where we're going to end up on what we do with this stuff. We give it to Jesus. We give it to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10, 35, another just a good focus on if you've got your self-care list on all the things you're doing, can you put it with 1 Corinthians 10, 31? And if that works... I think we're in good shape because that one tells us whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we must do all, not merely to please ourselves, but to the glory of God. Man, can the things that we are doing, can that be the answer for it? Anything, whether we're eating or drinking, whatever we do, we must do it all, not merely to please ourselves, but to the glory of God. I think that pretty soundly says what scripture's opinion is of the self-love culture. But important to put into the context, how did Jesus love us? In Romans 5.8, it says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I so love the freedom in that. Because here's where we have the best possible news in all of this, that he loves us. He even died for us in our mess. He did not wait for us to get it all dialed in. Again, you can see the hole in the argument that we must love ourselves first before we can love others. That is just idolatry of ourself. And nope, we, we don't need to have it all dialed in to love others. Jesus gives us that perfect model in the answer to our sin of idolatry. And We need to be honest with ourselves that just say it for what it is. It sounds like idolatry is like a super old word. And so, no, we're not doing that. Well, are we? I think we should be honest with ourselves. I need to be honest with myself. How am I practicing idolatry? Am I allowing the culture of self and loving myself, making myself an idol? Am I allowing that to have fruit in my life? Because that is idolatry. And so we first just need to be able to name it. We need to be able to say that, yeah, I have done that. I recognize that propensity, that inclination in me to want to elevate my thing over somebody else's thing and not do what Philippians 2 is talking about. That's practicing idolatry. It's just that is what it is. And it's not just an Old Testament. It's not just an ancient idol, but it's looking me in the mirror. And we just don't want to hear that. We just don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear that the idea of us elevating ourselves, loving ourselves, all these little quotes that sound so awesome, we don't want to say that that's us. We don't want to say that we're doing something terrible like Isaiah is talking about, something ridiculous like practicing idolatry. Because our culture wants to tell us and just remind us over and over about how important it is to take care of you, do your thing. That until your needs are all met, you can't meet the needs of others. We just hear that so much. And why I think this is just such an important 
discussion to have is because I think we need to just repent of our sin. We don't even like to talk about that part, do we? We don't really want to talk about repentance. We don't want to talk about the fact that, yeah, some of this stuff, oh, that actually hits a little closer to home. That is something we need to guard against. It needs something to be careful. We can be really defensive about this, can't we? And be like, well, I don't do that. But do we? And if we continue to buy into this self-love culture and the seductive phrases like you must love yourself and all of those things, then we're not recognizing it for the sin that it is. And we need to repent of that sin. And I know that this comes out pretty harsh to us gals because our world is so saturated in this claim that we need to know ourselves and love ourselves before we can we can do good things, before we can do things for others. But that really is contrary to scripture. Jesus said the greatest commandment, and we talked about this one a little bit earlier, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if that is our charge, how do we do that? I think we have established the fact that we shouldn't, according to scripture, we don't have to figure out how to love ourselves. We already know how to do that, even though our culture says we don't, but we do. (laughs) It's what God's word says. Colossians 3, 5 said, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Right there. Pretty short little verse. What kind, how do we put to death the things that are in our earthly nature? The idea of promoting ourselves can definitely go into that camp. And I think the first thing to look at at this is something that something needs to die. You know, we need to take our thoughts captive. And if you find yourself defending all the reasons that you should be happy and all the reasons that we're overworked or overtaxed or whatever the list is, if that's where you're finding, let's let's just pause right there. And let's take those thoughts captive. Let's do a little Colossians 3, 5 that says to actually put that to death. Second Corinthians 10, 5 says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. It's got to die. This concept, this idea, this idol of self has got to die. It's pretty, you can tell the Lord had a real strong opinion of this one. It's the very first commandment, right? The very first commandment, all the way back in Exodus, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And sadly, I think it's one that we probably glaze over the fastest because we're, again, we have that picture of that Old Testament picture of the little wooden idol that you make, or maybe even the, the giant golden idols that you picture in the Old Testament. But that's what we think he's talking about. That was what he was talking about, but it's more than that, isn't it? It is anything that we are going to worship over God, anything that we're going to give worship to. And the Lord wants that devotion. The Lord wants that dedication. The bottom line is that it comes down from a shifting our eyes off of us and onto Jesus. Jesus gave us a beautiful And actually, quite frankly, a pretty hard picture of what self-denial looks like. I mean, when you think about Jesus's life, when you think about certainly his death, you see self-denial, you see humility, you don't see self-promotion, you don't see coveting, you don't see that grasping spirit. But this encourages me because I think when we feel weak in our own strength, And when we're in those moments where those ideas of, boy, I sure deserve this, or I should be having this, when those start creeping in, we get to do a couple things. We get to take those thoughts captive, 
recognize that they're sin, repent of those sins, meditate on Jesus's example on all of this. He did this. He gave us the ultimate example of what self-denial and humility should look like. But we've got to take our eyes off of us and we have to look to Jesus that really is going to satisfy us. I love the simple proverb in Proverbs 16, 3, that says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It's a pretty simple, you know, principle there in the proverb. And I think there's all kinds of application with it. But I came back to that just simple proverb as I was discussing this, because I think this is clearly a pretty tough and not a very popular word for us, probably for anybody, but particularly women, we just are told these lies all the time, and it can start to seem like they're true. And it's easy to just hear them and go almost get overwhelmed, either that I've messed up or I can't believe I have allowed this to creep in. And and, and you can just start feeling down on all the things that you've done. But that isn't what Jesus would have us do. And I think, while I know that in parts of this is definitely a hard word for us. And I think the Lord intends for his word to have correction to us. It's not going to feel good. We've talked about that lots of times on the podcast. Just because something in scripture does not feel good to us doesn't make it not true. In fact, we need to be probably more astute as women, since we have more of a propensity for the feelings piece, to really guard our emotion and our feeling when it comes to something. And if something is just sounding a little too good, let's really measure that against scripture. Because when we do hear a phrase like, you got to love yourself to love others, it can sound so good. But then when you go, oh, wait, is that Jesus's example? Was Jesus doing all kinds of self-love and all of No, he was not. That's not Jesus' example. But then we can go, man, I'm not Jesus. I can't do this. And then that's when I come back to Romans 5.8, which is so encouraging to me. Because it says that he didn't wait for us to be all together. That he saved us. He loved us. He died for us in our mess, in our inadequacy, in our sin, in all of it. So we need to come to him and repent of this. Call it for what it is. It's idolatry, guys. It is. It is idolatry. But okay, it's in scripture. He called it for what it is, but he tells us what we can do with it. We can take those thoughts captive. We can give them to Jesus who forgives us and loves us. And then the next piece of that, I think, is then just to meditate on his example. Let's not meditate too much on the examples that we're seeing around us of, you know, even Christian leaders and people that are uh, gals that are telling us how important this taking care of yourself culture is. We need to look to Jesus and away from ourselves. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at apcreek.com.